I'm Neil Pickett. Welcome to episode 11 of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a colleague in their creative space about their journey and their creative process, how they approach the business of making work. But unfortunately, the current pandemic has meant that face-to-face meetings are out of the question, and so, using the technological wonder of COVID, Zoom, the conversation this episode took place in my creative space, the studio. Now, I did say at the end of the last episode that I'd be talking next to Judith Lucy, but COVID, Pilates and physiotherapy has swarted that, which is a story for another day, and I'll let Judith tell that. So I've had to do a bit of a reshuffle and bring forward a conversation that was going to be episode 13. Award-winning dance artist and choreographer Joe Lloyd has been creating surreal and thrilling dance works in Australia and overseas for close to 20 years. Works that are often comedic, but somehow epic in their impact. Playful and impulsive pieces that are peppered with a confronting mix of explosiveness, vulnerability, awkwardness, and a very human tension. It's challenging work that asks something not just of the audience, but of Joe herself, as she attempts to make work that, and I quote, I don't know how to make. So how do you make work you don't know how to make? I began by asking Joe a rather vague question about the importance of process, and off we went. So, ladies and gentlemen, the elegant, statuesque and intensely thoughtful Joe Lloyd in front of her computer at home with the odd dog bark and occasional tinkling piano in an adjoining room. Yeah, it's not often given the time or it's always fl- Fleeting, and I think even more now it's fleeting, perhaps. The the sense of process. Or the the allowance or the, um, the opportunity for dialogue because the fleeting nature is often, you know, brief encounters, crossing paths and quick chats, but to actually, you know, get into some sort of conversation, um, it seems timely and it's it's important, I think. It's part of the sort of feedback loop of process I think the discussion I guess also coming from an art form that is um, quite often non-verbal um, I find the the language around dance very interesting right yeah. I know that you're a thinker and I've read that you you kind of one of the things you like is that one when a when a dancer re-enters their body it's it's a thinking process. That's, mm. I find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think <laughs> that um, a lot of the time with what I do, I verbalise a lot of it as I move. Um, but that has been, you know, something that was triggered, I guess, from teaching dance and even um, then transmitting my processes or my ideas that I'm playing with perhaps in a solo studio practice, how I transmit them for other dancers to then take on what I'm doing. So this this um, process of identifying what I'm doing, because often it's quite non-conscious, I let the body um, activate and then I consider what it's doing. So it's like I'm often retracing what has happened physically and then verbalising that and that's often a way of transmitting it to the other dancers that I work with so that they can then um, attempt to do what I'm doing or I can see what resonates about how I transmit that. And I think maybe the verbal um, uh, element of that process became more important around the time that I was making a work, I think, I'd say five or so years ago where I didn't want to use video as the source of transmission. I didn't really want to have them using recordings of me dancing and then learning it off video or using the video to document. I wanted to find other ways to abandon the visual as a way of documenting the process and building a work. I really wanted to shift that. So then I fell into using other sources and that became... Um, 
much more about language and words and um, looking at how, in some ways, notation, what I was doing was somehow notating through another means. The the idea of conversation is, seems, I've only seen a few pieces of your work, but it seems to be an important part of your creative oeuvre, if you like, that notion Mm. of conversation. And I read somewhere that you often used to have conversations in your head with people and sometimes that that led to a piece of work, for instance, Overture, where you were having a conversation with Felix Mendelssohn. Yes, Um, absolutely. And I think... um I guess referring to when I was younger and I'd do it sort of in a playful way, I think it was um, just because I was uh, driven, you know, um, I guess coming across artists that were of interest, you know, when I was young, you know, that first sort of moment where you're like, oh, you know, it, it opens you up to possibilities when you're young. And so that was the drive to want to connect and find out more about those sort of artists. And I think then now it is still that that process of finding something that's tangible so with overture for example it was you know felix mendelssohn had written some music i was fascinated with but he'd written it you know 100 plus years ago mm. and i remember hearing someone on radio back announce one of his overtures and saying you know he was anticipating our needs by 100 years or so and that thing of like well i'm connecting with it now why am i connecting with his music so the urge to have a conversation with him and find out who, who he was, what he was like. And I guess um, there's aspects of that that continue on where I'm fascinated by people who perhaps aren't around or that they're intangible in a way and I can't quite reach them. So how do you um, have those conversations? And then they, became, they, then they become fabrications or they you, you're kind of feeding from fiction and non-fiction point of views um and that that becomes there's some something about um going back to myth making and i think um that's interesting to me and of course i I think it's also to do with conversations i have and how i remember or the gaps in conversations often i'll have a conversation someone will say what what did they say and i can't quite remember wordings of things so i get um kind of a, an um, understanding of things, but I don't often remember the words. But then at the same time I have an extreme memory for words people have said that really strike me. So it's like this filter in my my memory um, that works a certain way and I find it interesting that we remember often what we want to and it's often hard to retrain your brain to <laughs> remember the other bits. So I think the, the, the conversation... Um, aspect of the way I work is really important and it it is interesting to work with particular people in mind and often I'm interested in the idea of what someone has said and then how that um, came back towards you and then how it sounded in your head as opposed to what it actually sounded like. You know, someone could say something in a gentle way but it really had an impact on you in a different way so it was voluminous in some ways so I'm kind of interested in that and um mixing up yeah mixing up the um the fictional and the non-fictional conversations um conversations that have been had that haven't happened yet that may never happen the ones that are redundant um if you could what would you say um and I think even now it's um interesting the exchange may not be verbal or it might be and and sort of the level of intimacy um, that can be attained um, with the different forms that we have in terms of conversation mm. even pre pre the circumstances that we're currently in with restrictions through covid um, I think I'm very interested in um, how close things can feel even if they're um, they're really intangible. It's interesting we're separated at the moment. I, I, I usually like to do this in your creative space, in your studio or wherever it is that you that you do the work but we're sitting here, um, I'm in a studio, you're at home, you're on a screen, mm. I'm here 
so much of the way that we would communicate to each other is not not present. All, yes. all of the physical side of things. And I know you've been working on a creative development recently. I mean, how has that gone without that, without the physical? Yeah, well... Um, because what I'm getting in that conversation is that you're taking words or or uh, uh, ideas of conversation and ingesting them and those ideas are then being propelled out in a physical, uh, physical way. Is that... Yeah, and exactly. And I think um, the stages I've worked through, there was that period where we could come to the studio before this current lockdown. And um, even then the restrictions meant contact physically wasn't present. So that omitted quite a um, large portion of how I'd normally work, which means there's permission to touch and there's permission to experiment and certain... um, uh, triggers or desires or impulses to work um, in a perhaps a more playful way would just chopped a huge percent of what we could do was taken away. So then what can you do at a distance in a room? And there's all these other possibilities. But also it, it just was um, then about going, okay, now we've got to adjust to even more restrictions. And for me, um, I think the words play a play a part in terms of rhythm, in terms of um, what sort of stimulation they give in terms of their content, um, how they play a part in terms of the composition of sound. So I I work a lot with composer Dwayne Morrison where we do this feedback where the words will get collected, they'll go through the process of him composing certain tracks and then they'll come back to me in a more musical kind of um, material materialization and then it's I guess then me feeding back off that so I I do a lot of that sort of from him back to me in terms of the um, creative process and I think I've really honed in on that which I've always loved because it really generates um, the vocabulary the physical vocabulary so in some ways at the moment that process is quite conducive and um, I'm working on something which does have a focus on um, a choreographer from the 70s, um, Philippa Cullen, who um, unfortunately she she's passed away at 25 suddenly, so um, she became ill. And it, it really um, meant that her the five years from 20 to 25 were quite um, incredible and um, I'm looking at archival material and um, I guess in some ways it's it's about how I can um, absorb or extract what I gather from her archive archive, and what do I do with that to physicalise that and what processes I want to propose to the other dancers in a remote way. So it's actually been something that isn't, um, isn't so problematic, like, so far, hmm. but it... Um, I think it's quite incredible to try and find the creative solutions at the moment. And um, even in the studio, we'd have to propose practice. So even if we weren't um, if it restricted in terms of our physical distance, we'd, I'd still have to be inventive in terms of how to transmit um, the concept to this realisation. And I think that often is the bridge, you know, that, is the hardest physically you can come together in the studio talk and then you're like right let's get to our feet let's go and I often think of this idea of body first so the body knows so I think um, often there's a real process of allowing for the transmission of um, what I know and then what the body knows in a non-conscious way but um, being quite acute with what information is fed in so the stimulation um, and then the body becomes the stimulant for the the, the work, you know, um, those feedback processes I think are really important and I think the hardest thing that's been removed at the moment is the feedback between the bodies, not, not physical but just um, vi- visually, you know, like I work with this idea of a barter system. So I think that's very interesting, like how my movement can then be... Um, received by others but then how I receive the feedback from their movement in the process. So that's, um, so, it's, so that collaboration uh, that 
it goes beyond, doesn't it appears, the idea of you going, well, you stand there and do that and I'll stand here and do this and we'll, we'll create a pretty picture out of all of this. It's much, mm-hmm. much more of a, a genuine collaboration, if you like, in the sense that you are, you are passing on ideas and then re- responding to the way that, that, that they, those ideas are responded to and the work kind of builds... I'm doing things Absolutely. with my hands, which is particularly particularly useful in a in an audio only setting. But you know what I'm saying. You see what I'm saying. Yeah, you were sort of doing that ripple effect that you see with the you know the tree log. You know the rings going out from the middle. I think proximal to distal. You know, I think um, exactly. It's it's very generous of those that I work with um, to to have them engaging in the process like that. And I think it's just my preference. It's not everyone's, you know, choreographic way, but a lot of people work that way. The exchange is quite, um, quite distinctive. It's, 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 it's everybody contributing to the work and um, it can be a, a bit of an ask because it's my interest and yes, they come to it and they have a choice whether they want to work with me like that or, but it's, um, it's sort of like when you bake something and, you you know, it's got all these flavours and you want someone else to try what you've cooked but they don't really, you know, like coriander or something, you know. It's, it's that thing of um, what resonates. I'm often trying to find out what they need in order to do the dance and um, that is about me backtracking and finding out what the dance is that I'm doing um, in the first place, so identifying that. Mm. And seems that it tells you rather than you tell it. I mean, you go to something with an idea, but then it starts to tell you what it is rather than you tell it what it is. For sure. And I think that's where I've got to be quite diligent um, about sort of um, framing or um, narrowing down the possibilities physically because otherwise a lot of junk gets... um, included and I need to keep being conscious and non-conscious at the same time and that's you know coming back to what you started off with you know about thinking and the thought behind the action and I I often think of Trisha Brown talking about um you know she was interviewed and asked about you know how much thinking plays a part in her movement and she sort of answered it with well who says my body doesn't think you know and I always think of I think of those um, those conundrums. It's like if the body knows more, then allow for that. Um, it, it's 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 a interesting muscle between you know um, unconscious and a conscious and not, and um, then what's in between. So I guess I guess yeah, the methodologies often. Um, play towards those um, ways of functioning, you know. So it is often about me going, don't think and do and then let's look at it and then let's build from there. It's that thing, have you always been a thinker? As a young kid, were you a thinker? Well, I, I, I spent a lot of time dancing. I spent a lot of time looking because I was the youngest and the range in ages of my siblings, uh, I'm youngest of four. So my brother's at the start of it and he's, you know, 15 years. So the bracket is quite um, vast. So I looked at a lot of things growing up that were happening around me. And I don't think I was, um, I don't think I was very uh, verbal for, you know, like I'd speak, uh, but um, it just wasn't my, it just wasn't something that, um, was a was a you know something that I engaged with a lot. I think I listened a lot. I looked a lot, um, and I danced a lot. So it suited me to dance because, yeah, and not in a kind of um, forced way or a problematic way. It just was how how I and now I talk a lot, <laughs> but you know um, I think it was just yeah. So growing up, I guess that led to yeah a lot of time in my head, and I wrote a lot from maybe the age of ten. Um, my sister gave me a book and, you know, it was like a diary, so I'd just journal, write, draw, and that happened for many years and um, I enjoyed that a lot. So, 
yeah, I think language was always um, part of that because uh, uh, it was the transmission from the thinking to the page and then, you know, into the body. So, yeah, and I think I I come from a family. (laughs) Exactly. I I come from a family of thinkers, like thick conversations, you know, juicy dialogue, um, big brains, you know, um, uh, and lots of passion in the in the family, like if if something was um, going on, you'd know about it. It was not a family that was um, keeping things, you know, pushed down under the rug or behind the door. It was out on the table. And so it was quite, I guess, liberating to be amongst. But, you know, like all of us, we grow up not really always knowing how other families function. So I guess I was around... You know, like we had a swear jar at the end of the kitchen bench, you know. Was it full? Um, so, oh, it just didn't function really. Like <laughs> it, it should have been overflowing, but um, no one really was diligent with that. But it was, it, it's, it, it started to fill up for a while there. Um, but, you know, I say this in a lighthearted way. I, I'm, I appreciate all, all of what I grew up around. It was, it's in a, it, and it's still um, surfacing in what I do. I, I guess sometimes I'm less conscious of what what those um, uh, influences are. Often I feel like the dance is all those people that I was surrounded by growing up and I don't really know, you know, how to identify or pull apart what the bit is that's Joe. You know, it's like I'm, I'm all of those people and I'm still all the people I'm around now, you know. Because I, I, I watch your work and, and, and there's a lot of... Um jerky movements a lot of a lot of uh, it's almost <clears throat> pardon me it's almost like <laughs> those ideas are being thrust out of the body those passionate mm. ideas but they're being thrust out in a way that's surprising to you yes uh, true yeah and i think often i work at uh certain speed and sometimes people question that like and I've started to maybe understand more of why I like working at a certain speed because um, I guess then I can bypass um, some of the kind of analysis as I go so for me I haven't quite you know worked this out but I think it's like this uh, perception at high speed that I'm quite um I guess, entertained by, not entertained like on the outside watching it going, oh, wow, Um, like virtuosity. I think I am entertained by the task of or attempting to do things simultaneously. Um, And I mean that in like a physical sense, like um, anatomically, like working certain parts of the body simultaneously. So there's these layers and um, points of attention in the body. And a lot of people are drawn to this way of working. I guess it's that um, if I'm at speed, I think maybe there's less, um, you know, there's awareness over analysis in the moment. And I think um, I'm interested in how I can, you know, a, um, allow for slowing that down. But I don't know, even to the point of, st- you know, in stillness, it's still a really highly functioning organism, the body, you know, it's um, working at speed within. So even if we're still Mm. like a plant, a tree, there's a lot going on beneath the soil above. Um, So I think I'm interested in that at the moment, the speed. Um, But, um, yeah, I've lost my thought there, but it was... Well, it's it's an interesting kind of very fine balancing act to me, the way I Mm. see it, between the idea and the action uh, mm. of that fine balancing act between instinct and uh, I, I, I want to say um, analysis because there has to be a certain yeah. amount of intellectual energy that goes into it but but at what point do you kind of let go of that and how do you keep the two things in fine balance without one sort of overrunning the other? Yeah, I think um, I often work in a way where I'm attempting something and I move between 
being um, aware of what I'm attempting and then allowing the body to attempt and that, yeah, moving between the instinct and the analysis is, is true. Um, this, this idea that the choreography is the attempt and then the attempt is, you know, to do what, you know, what's the choreography attempting to do? So I, it is very much um, a from the outside back into the inside, <laughs> you know, it's like um, shifting your perspective. Um, but, yeah, the idea you brought up before about these eruptions, um, there is something that um, I often come back to to do with the history in the body and, you know, um, how the lineage through family or through training um, how that plays a part in the vocabulary and I've been interested for a while now in the history in my body and why I move the way I do um, and a lot of people uh, make comments about my work and um, the representations that come up in my work and I don't you know even people asking oh do you did you go about it consciously to make a work that was you know addressing queer elements or you know and I don't often um uh, go about it in a way where I'm consciously going, I'm going to represent this or my work is about this or being political or being um, being forthright or getting a point across. I think that is where I step back from trying to um, um, set up things in my work that um, can be descriptive or be tangible straight away. I, I think I'm interested in... Um, the viewer then having to uh, decipher certain things as I'm deciphering it as well. So it's a working between the two, you know, so the, the audience or the viewer is part of that context as well. Um, or part of your conversation. Exactly. So um, I, I like that um, there's often a sense of confusion, um, which I think I've begun to learn that I'm quite comfortable with confusion or like I prefer, I pref it's a preferred mode in some way. Um, and I think um, ex exposing certain behaviours um, brings that on and I think that's another thing I'm comfortable with. I'm interested in the, um, you know, someone said that's my theatre, you know, this sort of shared uh, uh, private into public settings and, you know, in in a lot of the contexts that I've presented works, um, certain things are legal, you know, to do on stage, whereas it's a public setting and um, often that's not the case <laughs> in public um, to do certain things. And I think I thrive on, thrive on that environment, um, the sharing, like how, how vulnerable that, that can, that behaviour can be. Um, yeah, I think what I was getting at before was was the body, um, I think, can often be a conduit. You know, it can be a vessel that um, things pass through. So this idea that you brought up of erupting movements, um, I sometimes think, yeah, I do find that moment where there is a shock, not like a, oh, I'm possessed, <laughs> but this thing of... Um, Maybe I am. I don't know. But, no, I think um, the idea you of... You don't appear to be. The conduit, you know, I can be certain things. Um, you know, in recent works I've been entertaining that idea that none of it's me um, performing those roles, almost like, uh, I guess, like an actor, but um, not... Um, yeah, I, I think it's quite an interesting place to be in where I'm surprised. I like that thing of... Um, making choices making choices in live performance making choices with the other performers and being surprised by their choices and having to deal with their choices in live performance but also making the um scaffolding or the parameters really quite um precise so that we're not just in this sort of oscillating whatever can happen at any time but setting up those frameworks so that we all have an understanding of what what can happen, but we don't know what will happen in certain um, sections of live performance. And 
I think that is is a choreographic interest of mine, like how to, how to make work that um, provides that for the performer. That's interesting because we live in a society where we've liked to try and think that we can control outcomes, we can control what happens, and so we build these cities where everything's quite controlled and now we find ourselves in a pandemic where we realise actually we don't have that much control over anything much other than how we're going to get through this day. And mm-hmm. and that, to express that on stage, that that lovely idea that we think we we can control it, but it it's going to do what it does to a mm. certain extent. The day we can say, yeah, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there and I'm going to go there and it's going to play out like that, but what happens in between those things is beyond our control. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I think, I think it's um, that thing of how much is mapped out for you and um, how, how you play out your passive... Uh, and your active choices, and sometimes it, it's it's helpful to be playful for me to be playful amongst that. And even though at the moment I can plan certain things um, until the kind of culmination and the outcome, whether that's in front of a camera for a video work or whether that's in a live performance eventually when we can, that. Um, I can only control it in a certain way and I I have to be ready and open to all the things that um, fail and if the failures are actually um, better than the idea I had. Often I have really average ideas and I bring them to the group and I embrace them because I want to make them better. Like I kind of go, oh, it's just one of my crap ideas and often I, I spend a lot of time trying to fix them because... They fascinate me because I can't fix them. <laughs> like they're so bad, they become they have to become good, <laughs> you know, and some of them I just don't let go of. So a lot of things resurface in my work and they're different iterations of the last investigation and um, I don't mind that at all. Um, I feel like that's that's the way I kind of get some traction or I can can make make improvements, you know. I can't let some things go and then other things it's like, oh, no, I've exhausted that, I'm done with that, you know. Don't mm. want to eat that meal ever again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, we're going to go to a little break. Um, a piece of music that inspires you. Oh, you'd like to hear, you know what one would be? Yeah. Oh, um... Oh, look, I listen to a range of things, some that are embarrassing, you know, like... Well, embarrass pop, pop. yourself. Go on. Oh, God. I'm trying to find something in my head. I'm happy to embarrass myself if that'll help you to embarrass yourself. Oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> oh, something like Life in a Northern Town? Ooh. Remember that one? Hey, um, yeah, um, I do. Um, um, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is where what I've been talking about is interesting. I grew up around a lot of um, different vinyl being played in the house and I love that and films, you know, so a lot of the goodies, you know, not the goodies, but a lot of the good tracks that I returned to a lot, um, you know, you know, I choreographed to some prog rock by Yes because that was like the one of the first pieces of music I choreographed to as an eight-year-old in my lounge room. Which particular so Yes track was it? It was Owner of a Lonely Heart. Oh, and, fantastic. Um, I actually had to choreograph to that as part of a project where, you know, we were each choreogra- choreographers were invited to, you know, dance to a track that they made up a dance to as a youngster and Owner of a Lonely Heart was it. I mean, I then remembered other things about, that, you know, music my brother played and, yes, particularly, like, I love Heart of the Sunrise. I still think that's an incredible piece music yeah <laughs> yeah
That's the unmistakable alto tenor voice of John Anderson and the English prog rock band, yes, owner of a lonely heart. And that was a live recording made at the Manchester Apollo in 2016 with Rick Wakeman still wearing his wizard cape on keyboards and John Anderson, despite being well into his 70s, sounding remarkably unchanged. And I personally think that more choreography should be set to prog rock. You're listening to episode 11 of Making Art with me, Neil Pickett. Making Art is released on Apple Podcasts and Google Play every fortnight-ish, depending on COVID restrictions. If you'd like to know a little more information about my guest each episode, pop on to the Making Art website, www.makingart.com.au or the Making Art Facebook page, which I am currently wrestling with. And if you can explain to me why Donald Trump can post anything he likes on Facebook and I get barred for putting up photos because they suspect me of unusual activity, I'd be delighted to know. On the website, you'll find helpful links to some of the things that have been mentioned in our conversation. You can also send suggestions regarding guests you'd like to hear from, prog rock classics that you'd like to see dance pieces choreographed to, or perhaps you might know a potential sponsor for this podcast. Of course, if you have any spare change, you could throw it at me using the donate button, which will help keep the interviews coming. But now it's back to my conversation with Joe. We kept chatting as we took a break, and I mentioned that I felt dance was currently perhaps the most connected of the performance disciplines, and off the conversation went. Here's me, followed by Joe Lloyd. I thought that was interesting, what, what we was talking about just then, um, mm. about how the dancers, the audiences have been coming to dance or dance has been coming to the audiences over the last... How long would you say that that's been... that you've noticed that that's been taking place? This recent sort of swell in interest with yeah. contemporary... Oh, look, at least five or more. I mean, it's always um, a, a variant, I guess, but I th- I think you're right that there's something, you know, there's something in, in dance at the moment that's really appealing and, I th- yeah, I, I, people have asked this as well before, you know, what, why? Why is everyone, you know, wanting to go and do dance classes or why is there a real interest in dance being in, involved in visual arts practices or um and I think it it is uh, for me it is um going going closer to the source you know it's um it's the instrument it's the material you know the body um so why I'm not sure it also could be just that particularly with contemporary dance it's definitely moved through different phases and with contemporary it's of the now and so what is the body of now you know what's the body how's it behaving um on its own in relation to others uh so i think it it can really be it can really be like i often think of it the movement or the body's behavior as the byproduct of um the now so even talking to a theater um, maker i used to work with a lot uh, she had been talking to another artist about now and how we're subjects of history. And I love thinking of that, but it's also that we're always subjects of history, humans are. So I think the subject is the body, the person. Um, so even uh, if you don't separate the, you know, what's up in your head from your heart, you know, and the, the bridge from the skull down into the chest, if, if you kind of think of a marble effect, you know, the whole body is the subject. So I guess, I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's um, maybe it's closer to uh, the way we can relate as the, as the person viewing and I guess work can, provide a perspective you know by watching others you know um and the perspective could be in all sorts of forms but um the craft behind choreography um you know it it keeps it keeps shifting keeps Mm. shifting like it's 
still of interest for me anyway. <laughs> well, I just uh, I just was thinking then when you were talking about what feels to me like an increasing restraint within society and the fact that what you're doing on stage is is breaching that notion of restraint. I wonder whether that's got anything to do with uh, it's almost like a yearning for the freedom that I experience mm. when I see your work, the mm. freedom of, of, uh, of gesture and action. I find that, yeah. that an intriguing possibility as to why we are uh, wanting to connect in that way. Yeah, I guess um, the 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 thing of um, feedback or um, how things um, can uh, work in relation to one another with, like I was talking to my dad who, you know, worked in drug research and chemistry, you know, that science background and... Um, we were talking a lot about my choreography one day and he said, oh, you know, this is a frequency. This is, you know, and he started talking about frequencies in, in, in chemistry and, you know, the idea that these frequencies um, that have less resistance can feed off each one another and these resistant, these less resistant conductors. And I sort of liked the idea that he was starting to notice that, you know, we're like those less resistant conductors as we dance and feeding off one another and then even within the body, the, the thinking and the doing. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe also what you were saying about the freedom is is connected to that, but I do like this idea of um, obliterating the restraint, you know, um, uh, but there's, there's a structure around that or a structure that supports that so it's not complete wild, abandoned, you know, I sort of went through a phase of making a work where it was really driven by abandoning responsibility. It was, um, I, call, I, I talked about making my Disneyland. Um, I think about, you know, you know, yeah, I think about uh, sort of being a brat um, and then this, yeah, this this feeling of stirring desire for the audience. So the, the audience has the desire to join in or the desire for it to stop or for the desire to yell out. Or So I like this idea that performance can stir desire, like a desire for it never to stop or desire to, um, you know, be, be um, affected. And, and um, I think stirring desire is very interesting and often severing certain things and the timing of things. Um, I, I think the basic idea of choreography is, you know, that thing of space and time, the intersection of those things. And um, maybe it's also that thing of, you know, the structured action and how long something has to play out for and and um, those those things... I guess you know a part of this um, this freedom you were talking this you know yearning and and you talked about gesture and I think that is really interesting to me because I have um, kept going back to um, of kind of avoiding gesture in the the use of it that I know of in in choreography you know that it can be um, you know closer to mime. So I sort of found it a little bit of a no-go zone, but without, without uh, it's like what I was talking about before, the thing of this is such a bad idea, I can't possibly do this, so then I've got to fix it. And, and I think gesture has been one of those issues with me and I just want to avoid it, but I can't completely avoid it because it is part of, you know, this interest I have in representation or, um, you know, referencing uh, points in history or referencing um, time and uh, gender and but also how can I, you know, augment and um, how can I not avoid but address some of these things. So that's, that's something that um, 
I'm really interested in still working out. And even in the recent rehearsal, one of the dancers, Rebecca Jensen, you know, we were talking about trying to think of a replacement for the word gesture because it mm. wasn't quite gesture that we were working with. And she said, oh, it's, it's maybe signalling, you know. And I really love this idea she brought up of signalling because there is a signalling between us or t- between us and the viewer with what we do, you know. Um, or even I think about things that are clues in the work that I do. Um, and... I guess that's sort of me looking for clues when I discover f- the physical dance that I'm interested in or the dances I'm interested in and then me providing those clues. You know, sometimes I think, oh, we can't not show this. You know, like we found this. We can't not put this in the work. Um, and so then they become the clues that I discovered and then I allow them to be discovered in the work for the viewer. You know, so then the clues unravel and like I said earlier, that that we're I'm working it out as the viewer's working it out. I mean, I don't always um, understand it. <laughs> but is that that that's uh, I guess that's that thing of I think every new phase of any kind of form, whether it be dance, uh, visual art, theatre, there comes a point where an audience has to be engaged at that level, don't they? Because when we get, like if we take classical ballet, for example, we know the cues, we know the gestures, we know we know how what good point work is, we know what a good swan looks like. Mm. Uh, but then as we move into a different form of dance, we all have to play our part in coming to understand it. And so I, because I go to your work and I when I first saw your work, I didn't understand it. I didn't know mm. what the clues were. I didn't know mm. what what to do with it. And it's taken me <laughs> some time, well, it's taken me some time to come to understand that I think I went with that idea that you were going to show me something. Mm. And, I, and I giggle because I, I like that you're so transparent. You're just like honest. I'm, you know, I love that, that you're like, I don't know what to do with it. And a lot of people were like, I liked it, but I didn't get it, you know, and I think um, I I think that willingness is really appealing. That's also why I laughed. It's sort of, yeah, it, as long as people are willing. But, yeah, maybe it is also, I think, because I did the Kia Choreographic Award um, this year and there was eight, you know, choreographers that were commissioned to make works, short works, and then, you know, that was down to four finalists and then the winner. And, I mean, I didn't get into the second stage of the four finalists and I thought, oh, the the jury were overseas choreographers um, and they, you know, perhaps didn't know my work. And then the people in the audience were really behind it and great feedback and it made me think, well, I guess a lot of the people in Melbourne would have seen my work and so they were attuned to certain things and um, even to the point of like wanting to see the next thing I do. And so it was really quite exciting actually that the jury, there was only four of them, but they, you know, obviously there was something about the work that didn't work for them. And um, I think there was even some feedback where it was that it wasn't, um, it wasn't connected, like the, it was, yeah, the idea that the composition didn't play out in a cohesive way and that thrilled me because in some ways um, it's a shame that it didn't work for them but it's also that thing of I'm interested in that that less cohesive um, structure. So it, it does require someone to work a little harder sometimes. You know, I don't want them to you know, <laughs> have a horrible time. But, yeah, it was an interesting experience and it highlighted that for me that maybe, you know, there's a comfortability with those that know my work and... Mm. I was listening to a podcast about the Rite of Spring and how um, when it was first played there was a riot and then a year later it was played. Uh, this is in, I think it was Diaghilev Ballet and it was... Um, it was celebrated a year later, 
but because the the sounds that uh, were first heard were so different to how orchestral music had sound up to, sounded up to that point, it actually agitated the audience to the point of a riot. Um, mm. And then, but then once they had begun to understand the language of those sounds, a year later it was celebrated. I think that's the sort of thing I found with your work was that until I invested time in understanding what you were trying to do, I mm. I was, and I knew it was good, but I just didn't know why. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and I think also it sometimes appears that, you know, anyone could get up and do what we're doing physically, and I don't mind that that's often the reading, but at the same time I do sometimes feel sorry for the... <laughs> The, the choreography, you know, not for, sorry for me, but I feel sorry for the actual dance because the dance is often about um, uh, a really strong skill set. You know, it's, it's, it's often people do some of my, you know, rehearsals and process and they say, oh, I feel like I need to go and do some ballet to be able to do this. So often it's really anchored in technical demands and I find that really interesting. Um, it looks like we could just be wiggling around on one foot and then, you know, dropping to the floor. But um, there's a there's a <laughs> there's an interesting background um, source of technique behind it, which I, I still find amusing. Like people be like, that's not really dance. And a lot of the time it is ordinary. Often there's re- very ordinary things in there, but they're really important in the in the composition. I think, um, yeah, it's it's quite an interesting one. Um, yeah. Were you classically yeah. trained? Yeah, so I did um, quite um, like I did full time training at the Victorian College of the Arts Secondary School for year 10, 11, 12. and then I went off to the tertiary school for another three years. And so every week we'd do um, four ballet classes, classical ballet classes, and for contemporary, you know, and I did point work um, right up to the last assessment, right up to the last performance. So, you know, there was times when I was sort of aiming to do more classical when I was younger. I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School and, you know, I wasn't sort of dreaming of the fairy kind of world. I didn't grow up with that like a lot of young females do but I didn't I didn't grow up with that fantasy I just actually really thrived on the technique behind it um and if in some ways I think I was fortunate that I just didn't have certain things going for me like certain things my body didn't naturally have going for me and a lot of that was um well you're tall for a start and that's that's typical for classical ballet isn't it yeah and I think at a, at a point, uh, it was becoming quite a a, um, a fashion, actually, for the taller, longer sort of New York City ballet was employing more dancers that were long and tall. But just little things like the aesthetic of the feet, you know, you you know, you you had to have certain things, and they weren't there. You know, like my feet weren't all extremely, you know, pointy or. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting time, and um, I think in a way it was great that I didn't get to go down that path because I had to kind of find another way of going. And contemporary dance always interested me interested me because my I had a bit of a classic situation where my older sister did dance, and then she started doing contemporary, and I had to stick around and watch the contemporary until Mum picked us both up. So I get I got to watch. Um, and I then the teacher said, you can join in if you want. And I was younger by two years, but I joined in with the older group and taking off the tights from the ballet tights, you know, the class that I'd done was a moment of wow, you know. So that appealed to me early on, that barefoot on the ground and going from turn out to turn in. I distinctly, not to sound like I'm romanticising the moment, but I do distinctly remember doing that and being up the back and thinking, oh, here we go. And he, the teacher, um, Arthur Turnbull, his name was, he he was quite an amazing um, teacher to have at this local ballet school. Like our, our um, 
teacher had brought him in and, he, you know, if I look back now, it's like, wow, actually he was incredible. You know, he had this he had this lycra jumpsuit that was low neckline, so almost like a weightlifter kind of neckline, but he had these flared um, pants that, you know, it was a onesie and, you know. It wasn't it was beige, lycra. was it? No, I remember it more bright colours. Right. But, but then he choreographed a piece at the end of the year in the concert and, you know, it was awesome. It had this, and I don't use that word that much, but it had this massive bit of fabric that covered the whole stage and he wrapped up one of the dancers and the way they wrapped her up was they put her in the middle and then all the others ran around with the fabric. You know, so it was a little little um, ballet dancing girl. It was like, what have we got here? You know, like rolling around on the floor and using the imagination was always the best bit of the class. Even if it was ballet, you know, it would be like, oh, now we've got to use our imagination to um, be the fairy that broke the wing and now you've got to use the cobweb to thread the wing back on and stitch it back on. And that was the bit where I went, oh, I love this world. I loved the imagery and I loved the imagination going off and then physicalising that. Like early on, my teacher did that and I don't think I realised until recently that that's the way I teach. I teach with imagery and um, practices that I was drawn to at college, you know, idiokinesis where the idea affects the movement. I I found that really enthralling and I think that that, that is what I, I still like to go towards. It's, uh, from an acting point of view, that is the sound affects the emotional response. Is yeah. that a similar thing? Do you use, I mean, you do use sound, don't you? I know you, you mouth words when you dance often. Does a mm, sound... Yeah. Does a sound trigger something in your imagination or is it...? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I could... One of my favourite things is dancing to voice and um, I guess um, then how that that goes into a musical piece and then how that comes back. But it's not so often that I will choreograph to the music, you know, in terms of I don't use count so much. I use rhythm a lot. I'm a sucker for melody. I, um, I mean, I sometimes do just love to go to that old-fashioned thing of making up a dance to a song, you know. Um, I don't shy away from something that sort of seems ridiculously obvious. Sometimes I'm like, let's do that. I mean, recent works where um, a piece I made with Deanne Butterworth and two um, other artists, Tina Havelock-Stevens and Evelyn Ida Morris, we made a piece called Double Double, which the two drummers, Ev and Tina, they play for two hours and Deanne and I physically work for two hours in relation to them. So the four of us um, do exchange roles in some ways throughout the two hours, but um, most of the time it's physical for Deanne and I and that that is a work where because there's two drum kits operating at the same time, often at the same time I'm trying to um, respond to, to those actual percussive moments and I quite like having to lock into that in that work. Um, but say with Overture, that was a different thing in terms of working with the Felix Mendelssohn Overture. I didn't actually choreograph to it directly. Like I didn't start it, play, press play and go, okay, left leg, right arm on that bit of music. I actually decided to use it in my head. So I just... Um, would dance it with the memory of it in my head because I'd heard it so much. I sort of brainwashed myself. So the rhythms were kind of in my body rather than I'm wiggling around on my chair, <laughs> um, rather than like me directly responding to it in the moment. And then we sort of bring the music back and... And see how and they find... played against each other. Yeah, because I kind of didn't want that matchy-matchy thing. I wanted to um, sort of be wrapped up in it in a different way and I... I very rarely use counts and do matchy-matchy, um, but sometimes I crave it and, you know, there has been moments where I've done it to the point where it's driven me insane and the dance is insane, like very quick choreography, and I do crave it and I think my the composer I work with 
Dwayne, he he craves it because he kind of, you know, wants to see that precision. So when I do do that, it, it's often the moment of like, yeah, that was good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but but I have been having thoughts and discussions with him and we are looking at, um, you know, how we go on with this work that we do with the verbal and the musical and, you know, maybe it is a bit more musical um in, a, in actual fact, you know, um, yeah, because I do love the relationship between the words and the movement, yeah. We've run out of time. Oh, well, that, that was a nice way to end. That's a lovely way to end. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm going to sort of suggest that, that we'll ask you about another piece of music <clears throat> that you, given we were talking about words and music just then that could take us out? Oh, gosh. So we've had a bit of yes. We've had a um, bit of yes. Frog rock. Um, look, it's such a cliche. I almost feel like telling myself, no, don't even mention it. But when we were talking before, I started to think a lot about, um, you know, you were talking about Rite of Spring and I started to think of how often I don't like what I make or I don't understand it. And then later on I kind of go, oh, I'm in love with that piece. And there's not many of them that I really like. And I was really interested in Bolero as a as a piece of music, Ravel's Bolero, because it was, you know, something I read about a bit and that he didn't really like it. And he had a real clear agenda, but he didn't really like it. And apparently he was, you know, going a bit mad at that point in his life. And um I don't know, I just, I think it's amazing. I'm not saying we should play that, but, you know, I do like this idea. Oh, dear. Uh, Yeah, I do like this idea of um, that relationship you have to your work being a bit of a, there's a bit of tension in there. Um, And then it's almost like the, the works that I make that people don't like, I like them more, you know? It's like, but then when they start to like them, I'm like, no, don't like, <laughs> don't like that. I can do better than that. <laughs> That's not the best. Yeah, but yeah, Ravel's Bolero is pretty extraordinary because a lot of people have choreographed to it, and I just sometimes think music that great, you should just leave it alone. Like, don't try and choreograph to it. Just let it exist. Yeah, don't touch it. You know, he does go nuts in the end. I mean, I'll, that's what I love. Thanks so much, Joe. Pleasure, thank you. Thank you. Ravel's Bolero brings us to a stately end of episode 11 of Making Art. My thanks to Joe Lloyd for allowing me into her home virtually. Column for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music that you can hear playing quietly in the background, was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Scott at Pixel Shifter. And technical production is by Matt Gerberkorn at Sonic Playground. Making Art was recorded and produced by me, Neil Piggott. Join me in a fortnight when I'll be talking to the comedian and children's book author, Frank Woodley. I'll leave you now with a tune I definitely think should receive the Joe Lloyd prog rock choreographic treatment. This is John Anderson with Mike Oldfield from Oldfield's 1983 album, Crisis. The song is In High Places. Bye for now. Look down from in high places Lift up the ground without a sound yet we 
Lighter, lighter, navigator. 